Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalise Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll get ready for the Year of the Dragon with Newbery and Caldecott Honor author and illustrator, local hero, Grace Lynn. She's hosting a family-friendly event at Bombix this weekend to help everyone celebrate the Lunar New Year. We'll talk about her with her about the traditions they'll be showing everyone in Florence on Saturday. <laughs> Plus, we'll chat about economic equity with John Lewis. Whoa! Not that John Lewis, but what a good company to share a name with, right? He's the CEO and co-founder of Team Reset, which is building and reframing economic equity for disenfranchised communities in the Berkshires. But first... Are you excited to be a karaoke judge? Uh, judging, yeah. I think I can judge people. <laughs> you won't have to sing. Thankfully, no. Do you have like, a go-to karaoke song when you do sing? Yes. What is it? Faith. George Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Which is so funny. We think it's to you a man of science more than a man of faith. <laughs> well, for karaoke, you need a lot of faith. <laughs> Mr. Universe, karaoke judge. Thursday night, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Big Love, Little Performances, Hatfield. I'm an MC. I, I am doing karaoke. What song yet? I'm not exactly sure. Some duet. We did the New Year Waiting For Me with George Michael and Aretha last year, though. All right, well, <laughs> as long as it's George Michael somewhere in there. <laughs> Time for some more kitchen table astronomy at the Amherst kitchen table of Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, our very own Mr. Universe. We live in an era where, A, people doubt that science is real, despite lots of evidence, and B, where people don't like to admit that they're wrong. Science can be real and also admit that it's wrong when new science happens. And that's what the topic of our conversation is today. Sometimes you have to just take a deep breath. I create videos on YouTube as well for Audience for South Asia, but also this also goes on YouTube too. And you get comments, blanket statements. For example, oh, Big Bang, oh, this is all wrong. Or completely dismissive to science. And oftentimes people go like, oh, you can't trust science. It says one thing one day, another thing in the other. So basically everything is relative. And sometimes that is true that things change. You can love your theory, you can love your idea, but if the evidence goes the other way and you go like, yeah, you know, I was wrong. That is also part of history of science. Uh, sometimes uh, people do it more graciously, easily, and sometimes not. What I wanted to point out today was prompted by some of our recent conversations, and we often talk about galaxies or supermassive black holes, we've been talking about that, are the center of galaxies. And we know both of those things exist, but galaxies, this is something that we know our Milky Way is a galaxy. People talk about, hey, Andromeda galaxy, that is sort of like, you know, right now in the nighttime, you can also see it, that it's a galaxy like ours, about a few million light years away. And that is the nearest spiral galaxy. And our universe is full of galaxies. You have more than a hundred billion galaxies. And people go, wow, by looking at Hubble Space Telescope images or James Webb images of Hubble Deep Field or James Webb Deep Field, so on and so forth. But a hundred years ago, in 1924, in fact, if we were having this conversation and we'd be like, are those galaxies, galaxies like the Milky Way? That was a big debate. And some people argued, uh, including a famous uh, astronomer, uh, Harlow Shapley, he argued that actually those are spiral nebulae. You could see the shape as spirals from the telescopes at the time, but we didn't know how far they were. And so Shapley, who was an astronomer, argued that 
they are actually not very far away. They are part of the Milky Way. And he thought the Milky Way itself is much bigger, not like sort of like, you know, millions of light years across, but a few hundred thousand. And these Andromeda Nebula, for example, is part of the Milky Way. Then there were others, like, for example, Edwin Hubble himself. He thought these spiral nebulae, like Andromeda, they look very small, but they look small because they are very, very far away. How did Hubble figure out that they were very, very far away? And this ties into an overshadowed person in the history of astronomy. And so again, we are talking about 100 years ago. 100 years ago, the question was, well, what is the nature of these spiral nebulae? And the biggest problem in astronomy is that of distance. I mean, if you look up, you are seeing basically like a planetarium. <laughs> you are seeing a two-dimensional sphere or sort of like, you know, around us, a dome. But you don't know how far away things are. And so for astronomers, that is a key thing uh, to determine because if something is faint or small, is it because it is far away or it is because it is intrinsically faint or small? So you have to figure out, you have to find a way to find distances to objects. Now, for a few hundred light years away and relatively nearby stars, we can use uh, something called parallax. And parallax is something that basically your eyes do in terms of measuring distances. You can actually extend your finger in front of your eyes and you can close one eye and the other and you will see your finger basically appear to move with respect to the background object. And if the finger is close by, the movement is going to be far more. Oh yeah, if I just did it. If it's farther away, the movement is going to be less. Everybody should try this, unless you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you can basically, by the movement of it, the finger is not moving. It's your eyes that you are shutting off left or right. The finger appears to move with respect to the background. If it moves more, it's closer, less, it's farther away. That's so cool. That's a very powerful technique. It's very good technique. You can mathematically, you can easily figure out from trigonometry how far away something is based upon the movement. And we can use that movement because of the Earth going around the sun. You are at one side of the orbit and then six months later, you can actually look at the same star, for example, from the opposite side. And you can see how much the star has moved with respect to the background faraway stars. Six months from now, it's like your left eye and right now is your right eye. Camera one, camera two, with the planet in its rotation. That's how some stars and galaxies are figured out. Well, far away not galaxies, just stars. Okay. Because this would only work in the same way if, you're, uh, if your finger, the example, if you go back to it, if you can extend it to about a mile, you can switch your left eye or right eye as much as you want. You will not see anything move in the background because it's too far away. Okay. And so this particular technique of parallax uh, works for stars that are nearby. And for telescopes, we have used sort of like, you know, to about a thousand light years or so. And after that, it becomes too hard to measure any variation, any movement of that star with respect to the background. But this is a very good technique, but still relatively close by. So you need to find something else. And one of the most important things that allowed us to find distances, it's a particular type of star. It's called a Cepheid variable. Basically, what we know about that is it's a stage of a star that is bigger than our sun, and it varies in brightness. They become big and small for very specific physics purposes, which we understand very well. Their atmospheres basically become smaller, and as they become smaller, they got hotter, and then 
it expands back up and then they get a little bit cooler and it varies systematically. Some Cepheid variables would have this period of dimming and brightening for about five days. Some would have 10 days, some would have 15 days. And so you can actually find these variable stars with very specific brightness pattern. Okay, so that's well and good. But here is the thing. There was an astronomer, Henrietta Leavitt. Uh, she lived in the early 1900s and she discovered that there is a relationship between this period of uh, their variation and how bright they actually are. And this is called period luminosity relation or the Levitt law. And this was crucial because in some ways, this tells you that if you can figure out how many days it is taking to change its brightness, it will tell you how bright it actually is. If it's faint, that means it's far away. If it's bright, it means it's close by. It's like if you have a flashlight and you know it is 50 watts. If you are close by, you would see that same flashlight much brighter. If you see it as faint and it's the same 50 watt bulb, you know that it's far away. So because Henrietta Leavitt could figure out by this fluctuation in brightness, how bright a star actually was, she could then tell that star must be far away because it's faint. So this was uh, in the early 1900s. She was working at Harvard and uh, she was given these photographic plates and she was looking at a lot of these uh, stars in the small and large Magellanic clouds, which are in the Southern hemisphere. And she was asked to look for these variable stars, Cepheids. And she looked, she found, I think around, actually number sticks in my mind because it's like 1,777 variable stars that she identified in these Magellanic clouds. Out of those, 25 she identified as Cepheid variables and they were all part of small Magellanic cloud. So they, she knew they are all part of the same cloud. They are all at the same distance. Now you can just measure their variation and you can figure out whether they are bright or dim, but you know it's the same distance. So you can actually figure out what period leads to what kind of brightness. So this was amazing. She actually published that paper, I think in 1912 or 1913, that was extremely important because if you can identify a Cepheid variable, you can tell what is actual brightness is and it can tell you the distance. This is precisely what Edwin Hubble did. He thought Andromeda Nebula was actually quite far. There were others who thought, no, actually this is part of our own galaxy. And so he explicitly was looking for Cepheid variables in Andromeda galaxy. And he found one almost a hundred years ago. It was in October of 1923 when he first made an observation of the Cepheid variable. And that clinched the fact that Andromeda is actually quite far. And today we know that it's over 2 million light years away and it's a galaxy like ours. And Monty, you had mentioned about admitting that you are wrong. So this other astronomer, Harlow Shapley, who actually thought that Milky Way is really big and these spiral nebulae are part of the Milky Way. Hubble wrote him a letter, sending him his results, and he seemed to have said like, you know, that this letter destroyed my universe. <laughs> and then he went on to actually use Cepheid variables to actually determine uh, where the sun is located with respect to the Milky Way. And now we also know, sorry to disappoint, but we are not at the center even of our own Milky Way. We are located about 30,000 light years from the center. A lot of that stuff centers around 
using Cepheid variables that came from Henrietta Leavitt and Leavitt's Law. Uh, and in fact, uh, Edwin Hubble actually nominated her for a Nobel Prize. And if I remember correctly, the Nobel Committee also wanted to approach her for the 1925 Nobel Prize. Unfortunately, she had already died in 1921 and Nobel Prizes are not given posthumously. So Uh, she never got that. But if it weren't for Henrietta Leavitt's math, we wouldn't know how far away things are. If it weren't for Hubble trusting that math, we would think perhaps that these other galaxies that we know about were part of the Milky Way. Hubble's telescope then goes on up in the sky to take a deep field image to just open its lens for a long period of time in a patch of sky that we thought was dark. And what happened? It was supposed to be an empty patch, but it turns out to be full of galaxies. And I should actually close the loop regarding that. One of the key projects of Hubble Space Telescope was actually to look for Cepheid variables in other galaxies. Because then we can find out more about the expansion, because then you can measure the expansion of the universe and so on and so forth. But ultimately, if we can come back to where we started, this is one of those cases that this is not changing. We actually do know this is like Earth goes around the sun. If you think, well, science one says one thing one day, one thing another, that is not the case. We actually do know, like, you know, the Earth is going around the sun. And the same way we do know that the Milky Way is just one of the galaxies and Andromeda is another galaxy a few million light years away, and that the universe is full of galaxies as seen by Hubble Deep Field as well, and that we are not at the center, our solar system, our sun, our earth, we are not at the center even of our Milky Way galaxy. So when we think about our own perspective, we have to take that into account. We cannot just make stuff up that, hey, you know, we are really important. We ought to be at the center, but we are not. And so then people have to figure out how to think about importance in a different way. I mean, I think the sense of importance, maybe one way to think about that is that even though we live in this completely ordinary neighborhood, 30,000 light years from the center of the galaxy, Nothing is happening here. All the action is downtown of the galaxy. <laughs> but we can figure these things out. Like, you know, that Henrietta Leavitt used these star brightness to figure out, hey, you know, we can use those for distances. And then from there, we can figure out how unimportant we are. <laughs> I think that is really cool. And I think that's what makes us important. Later in the show, we'll get ready to welcome the Year of the Dragon with local author and illustrator Grace Lynn, who's co-hosting a family-friendly event about the holiday at Bombix this weekend. But first, to the Berkshires to discover new ways to foster community by revisiting and rethinking the local economy with John Lewis of Team Reset in Pittsfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Oh, this Monty Belmonte? That's me. Oh, my God. (laughs) Famous Khaleesi and Monty Belmonte. Full disclosure, I had to see a picture of you before I remembered. I was like, I know John Lewis. Yeah, it's all good. (laughs) You know, there's another John Lewis I think about first, obviously. Absolutely, man. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. The Reset Agency, and that's spelled R, 
the number three SET agency facilitates self-directed economic, organizational, and community transformation through a curated network of experts, consultants, and coaches. Which is a fancy way of saying that they help people learn to work with each other and also teach them to use technology to create better and stronger communities. And at the core of that mission is their (laughs) efforts to bring those skills, especially to underserved and underrepresented peoples. With us today is John Lewis, co-founder and CEO of Reset, along with Speakeasy, a podcast studio birthed from that organization. John Lewis works towards innovation in inclusive and community-based economics with organizations like One Berkshire, Berkshire United Way, Berkshire Bank, Berkshire Taconic Community Foundation, the Berkshire Black Economic Council, and my favorite named of all these, the Blackshears Community Empowerment Foundation. <laughs> In 2020, he launched TeamReset.com, a think tank of sorts, to inspire and engender innovation. The organization aims to foster equity while deepening community connection and encourage new economic growth for the disenfranchised through community-based ownership and digital systems that make communities inclusive and resilient. Thanks, John, for joining us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. And I was really happy when you hit me up. But when I learned that it was you and Monty Belmonte just to minute ago, I'm now even more excited. <laughs> We're excited too, John. We made it. We really made it. We did it. We did it, right? Yeah. We knew each other through the Northampton area, but now you've expanded into the Berkshires and you've got your hands all over the Berkshires and all sorts of different things there, John. Yeah, the Berkshires has been good to our company and business, um, but I think we've also been very good for the Berkshires. And I think that's important to have that kind of mutually beneficial scenario that happens. You, you know, you don't usually find that. So we've been really excited. Um, the Berkshires has really embraced our innovative way of thinking in terms of community development and community engagement and community impact, which is super important, especially around like multi-equity lenses and cross-sector collaborations. When I talked to you when you were forming this kind of mid-pandemic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the elevator pitch was putting more equity in the black community, like in giving them more information to make it more economically independent in a way that would serve them. How has that mission come along? It's been great. um, Just kind of a background story is when I first got here to the Berkshires, one of the things that we noticed, and Devin, my business partner, um, we did kind of an idea jam, which is another kind of community convening, but uh, more of a community engagement and design thinking. And what we saw and what we were finding out and hearing was there were really no black institutions that was really addressing the issues of economic growth and economic equity, economic justice within Berkshire County at all. So that lens was not being really addressed. There were other areas like, you know, civil rights and and other areas of equity, but in the area of economics and community-based development, that was really missing. So Devin and I got together and because of my background in community development and economic development from work I did in Kansas City, I was able to kind of bring that expertise to this area and lens. So that work began in 20, like you said, 2020, 2021. And what we did was a massive convening of about 125 um, black community stakeholders, but also community banks like Greylock, um, Berkshire Bank and Berkshire Bank Foundation was really huge in uh, collaborating with us. We partnered with Berkshire Deconic Community Foundation as they were really trying to address this issue of uh, the wealth gap in the community. So we partnered with them, Berkshire Bank and One Berkshire, which is the Economic Development Corporation, around this whole idea of creating an economic blueprint and community development plan for the black community. And that lent itself to a greater, larger partnership 
at the same time I was serving as economic development justice chair for the NAACP and also um, the chairman steering committee for the Black Economic Council committee that was starting the Black Economic Council. So as we did this, we came up with a whole blueprint and plan. We had six idea jam sessions during the pandemic. It was very <laughs> interesting the day that we were actually supposed to launch this whole idea jam kind of success accelerator platform was literally on the day that they said you couldn't have more than 50 people. <laughs> <laughs> and we had 100 people ready to come out, right? <laughs> so we had to really move and change this to a digital and virtual experience. Mm. Um, fortunately enough, because our company had been um, doing this you know, all along, because my business partner stayed in Berkshire and I lived in Northampton. So we, we met virtually all the time using all the same platforms that everybody's using now. Mm. So it was easy for us to make the switch, but it wasn't that easy for us <laughs> to make the switch, right? Right. Um, but we did. We got uh, six uh, sector-specific sessions around neighborhood revitalization, Black entrepreneurship, leadership, arts and culture, green economy, which were all the sector specifics that we designed as a reset to say, hey, look, we think these will be the economic drivers for this area, including culture and tourism. Um, that led to a massive report that we did that we presented to over 50 stakeholders. Um, and the whole philosophy was around a trickle up economic uh, strategy with an ownership ecology meaning that black folks needed to own their own institutions to be able to move funding and investment and resources to the community directly. Um, the result of that was the launch of uh, the Berkshire Black Economic Council, the launch of the Black Shirts Community Empowerment Foundation, the launch of uh, Black Voices Matter. Now we have Westside Legends who's doing a housing buyback program. And since 2021, I think we have probably garnered or energized over $1.7 million in investment uh, within the Black community here in Berkshire County. That's never been heard of, where you launch literally four institutions of nonprofits and it totals to that dollars. And we just uh, got through finishing up and now are relaunching our leadership development program, 12-week accelerator. We just graduated our first class back in June of last year, and now we're ready to launch it again this year. Um, and that was supported by the Urban agenda grant that is produced or given out by the Department of Housing and Economic Development, which, by the way, they are now using community engagement and leadership development for all their one-stop grants <laughs> as a culture based on the work that we did. And this year, they came back and doubled our grant funding based on the success of that program. So That's um, quite cool. the work that Reset <laughs> is doing is really having a dramatic and tangible impact. This framework that we use can be used for any sector. It doesn't matter, but it is really successful in equity development around, you know, black neighborhoods. But it can be used for Hispanic neighborhoods, it can be used for organizations or, uh, you know, economic development corporations who want to use this framework. So we're very proud of that work. We're speaking with John Lewis, who's the co-founder and CEO of Reset, along with Speakeasy, and has also worked with Blackshire's Community Empowerment Foundation. There's a lot of banks that you are working with, and yeah. not to put a fine point on it, but have you experienced any blowback or resistance from the community due to your work, your cooperative work with them in order to get like, I mean, the funds have got to come from somewhere, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you experienced any any sort of resistance to your no, work with them? No, I mean, them? not here. I mean, I think that like, I, first of all, that's a good question. For me, it was different because what was happening, and I do have to give kudos out to some like two or three folks that I thought did some very good groundwork moving forward. 
One is uh, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, who was working with the Berkshire Bank and Berkshire Bank Foundation and uh, Malia Lazu, who is uh, used to be the executive vice president for Berkshire Bank. These are major powerhouses who are really into working with financial institutions to figure out accessible on-ramps and create social justice initiatives and programs that could be invested in the bank, meaning innovating on how they would invest in communities and looking at non-traditional and more innovative ways. And because of that work, and also organizations like Multicultural Bridge and the ACP, there had been a lot of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusive work done in terms of the groundwork before I started. There was just not a lane for economics. So what happened was is that the two banks that were really focused in, and I would have to say more Berkshire Bank Foundation than anyone, because I went to them and gave them and said, hey, look, I'm working with Berkshire DeConnick. Here's the plan we want to do. The first thing, and I have to give a shout out to Lori Kelly from um, Berkshire Bank. The first people that she hooked me into directly was Sagan Iduwu, who was at the time president of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, and also Malia Lazu, who was executive president. So it was already baked into the fabric. Uh, and I think that that brand kind of like was kind of moving around in the community. So there wasn't a lot of question in terms of, are you really selling out working with these banks in terms of funding? Right. The other part was we actually worked with Berkshire Dakota Community Foundation, who was really looking at um, trying to figure out ways that they could really address the wealth gap. For us, it would have been easier probably to work with, you know, a black organization in the beginning, but it didn't exist. So one of the things that was important is that in the first idea jam is that we set a theme and the theme was an ownership ecology for black folks to own their own nonprofit or institutions to then reinvest in the community under a self-directed reparation strategy, you know, and that is when we had that theme, it didn't matter who partnered in because they had to partner in under that vision and under that mission. Coming up, more with John Lewis, CEO and founder of Team Reset in Pittsfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We're speaking with John Lewis, who's the co-founder and CEO of Reset, along with Speakeasy, and it's also worked with Blackshear's Community Empowerment Foundation about this radical work that you're doing in the Berkshires that's making some real waves in a pretty short amount of time since this stuff started to launch <laughs> at the very beginning of the pandemic. I love that you talk about radical collaboration, the key to solving all these problems. It'd be really easy to start a financial institution or you know some sort of financial empowerment organization that's all about money, 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 get it for me, let's, you know, let's go take the money and run. But you have baked into this, this equity. Yeah. It's not socialism, but it isn't far off in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's not socialism from the perspective of, if you look at the research, if, if, if an organization has a good equity strategy and investment for the black community around areas of housing, economic development and community development, there's a net return for that within the community, right? Um, I think it's like 19% increase in, 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 in economic uh, impact for that community. One of the things that we were very good at, and because of my community development and economic development background, I was really able to speak the language uh, of these institutions, understanding that an inclusive economic strategy is a net positive for the whole of Berkshire County. And, you know, I sit on the Ex Economic Practitioners um, Committee for Franklin and uh, Berkshire County. And one of the things that the Berkshire Regional Planning 
is the state of the Berkshire County report that they do. And what I noticed is that, you know, black folks were following at the bottom of median income, housing, and all of this nature. So that's kind of like where it all started, right? So like, if I can give you the reason to say, okay, here's why investment needs to happen. And if I know currently you don't have a strategy for that, ultimately then that's the area we need to look at because overall was pulling, it's pulling on the GDP of the whole county. And this is an area where kind of like the civil rights movement really never happened. And uh, racism is by what I call oppression by omission. Mm. Um, so then therefore it didn't, you know, we wasn't in the room, <laughs> <laughs> and especially on the economic side, like we were good at the civil rights and kind of more the reactionary side and, and some of the symbolisms of diversity, but there was not a real, uh, inclusive economic strategy and a DEI strategy around economics and direct community development of, of programs that directly address the needs of black folks that could be done at scale. Right. And that's what we're talking about. Right. So you have to be able to reinvest. And we couldn't say, OK, hey, give us money. So I said we need to do a self-directed reparation strategy. Right. Because then we can just go out and get the money <laughs> and, you know, um, you know, apply for the grants and funnel them through the organizations. And, and not saying by ourselves, we did that in partnership, you know, and I have to say, like one Berkshire was the first one when I talked with Jonathan Butler, he was like, yes, I'm in when I spoke with. Lori Kelly, uh, who is regional president of the Berkshire Bank and also um, the director of the foundation, she said, yes, I'm in. And when we talked to Berkshire DeConnick, Peter Taney was like, yes, I'm in. So these are the stalwarts who were in from the beginning who said, okay, we'll back this with money. But they also wanted the data because they didn't have it, mm. right? And that was the other part, right? So we want to be able to communicate via data and via the data that's also coming from the black community in these specific sectors, then that combines a overall framework and strategy for inclusive economic investment moving forward. And that has made a kind of a sea change. And of course we have a long way to go, but we innovate on the side of reset in terms of making it an accelerator. So we curate and design a framework that pulls community together, helps with collaborative frameworks in an accelerated format so then therefore that's why you say well there's a lot to happen it was intentional yeah you know because we were like we don't have 10 years for a plan here we have to accelerate right and this is also george floyd so we know and you know this Khalees, it was <laughs> folks loving black folks and dei work ain't gonna last so much longer you know forgot about dei and if they elect donald trump Every, folks, yeah. strike yeah. while the iron's hot well it's strike it's, while it's the iron's hot so we have to thing do these things like, at it, right it happens every time every time somebody in the community dies and everyone remembers like oh wait that is disproportionate equity like that isn't equitable yeah. like this isn't equal and i think like you say like economics is a, is one place that that often gets overlooked some places like um the rise initiative with with mass save is one place where they're trying right. to look at that and trying to renegotiate some of that but that honestly like that benefits everybody it's not just the brown and like non-english speaking communities um that are able to take advantage of that this is something that is a little bit fubu um and for people who aren't familiar with the term fubu for us by us and there's something really kind of beautiful about that especially for like where you are in in Pittsfield and perhaps the Berkshires and maybe on a lighter scale what does empowered economic equity actually look like that's a really good question I think we're still discovering it but here I'll give some examples I come from a community development background with a slice of activism and a slice of kind of church mission so what it looks like is I think it starts with a vision of understanding, and we're still crafting this as the Blackshirts, but like how can we create 
the vision the vision that we set out and we're continually setting out is to make the Berkshires the best place regionally for black businesses and a place to live, work and play. The framework or success looks like, I think when you have institutions working together in collaboration around different sectors, making sure that investment is happening and that there's progress happening and it's measurable progress. And if you don't have a framework or a plan along with the vision and then with what, what I call uh, measurable goals that you can actually attain. And then of course, it's not always gonna be right, but if in fact you're continually being iterative and adaptable, and I think that's where Reset is really good in working with nonprofits and organizations to say, okay, look, we know if you try this out and if the data is saying from the community, which is driving this, right? Here are things we need to focus on and sectors we need to focus on. And if we track that data, and we track the progress and the success, that's all you can do. But what you wanna be able to do is adapt quickly, you know, and learn from that. For example, with the leadership program that we developed, it was a success. We actually won a trendsetter award for that particular program. But does that mean that program has arrived? No, <laughs> there was a lot of data we collected. <laughs> there was a lot of feedback from the cohorts and um, also our partners. And then, so the second year around, there's an improvement in terms of the Blackshirts 2.0, in terms of what that looks like and how we engage that moving forward. The success means is that if the community is driving it, we have a, a concrete plan, there's a, a good vision and mission. And if you run a successful program and you take those learnings and quickly adapt to that and continue to run it again as a successful program, that's what it looks like. That means that you're creating value, the community is leading this, and then leadership development is happening at scale. One of the things that's the problem in like a lot of communities, right? You know, and I'm not just talking about black communities because we're also dealing with, you know, like love the Democrats, but an aging out population, you know, Joe Biden's in office and he's 80 years old. Or, you know, even with the black community where, you know, I think some older boomers are not wanting to give up position. And we have to have decentralized leadership that's hitting from multiple perspectives in terms of where they want a community impact. So our leadership development program is designed to say, hey, we'll pay you to be a part of the fellowship as a scholarship, but then once you're done, you have an impact charter that you have to do, and whatever your community project is or your business, we invest in that, right? So now, instead of it just being John Lewis and some other few folks that are hoarding power at the top, we've scaled change, right? And, and empowered and give technical resources and skills to black community, emerging black community leaders in ways they haven't seen before that's very transformative. And then we continue to support you moving forward. That's where I see success and real change. It's not just me, it's being able to scale and empower other people to do the work that they wanna do within our community because the little known secret is, is that there's a lot of people out in the black community already creating work. They just need the support and they need the cultural spirit that helps move them forward. And that's what we're doing. So that's what success looks like to me. It's amazing. It's so innovative and incredible. And the philosophy behind it is totally inspirational. And I know there's another cohort that's being built right now with Team Reset and John Lewis and uh, the CEO and co-founder of Reset, as well as uh, one of the founding members of the Blackshire's Community Empowerment Foundation. You can find out more about all the work that they're doing by going to teamreset.com and spell reset with the number three r number three set.com and hey, can, I, I, can i do a brief shout out because i don't want to be a, just be about me i got a shout out to all all the real partners can i do a few sure shout outs? go for it you know it takes a team it's not i and team so let me just 
<laughs> There's no me and team. Oh, no, wait, there is. There's me and team. First of all, we had some really good folks. We had a, a great activation team, which is Lee Davis, Sharon, Chad, and all these folks were DEI folks or councilmen. But uh, I exceptionally want to thank the president of our board, uh, Dubois Thomas, my business partner, Devin Shea, who is really an integral part to bringing a lot of these innovations to the table, to Ari Zorn and to the rest of the board that exists now, which is uh, Julie Hagerson, Veronica Warren, and Leah Reed, and Natalie Wood, and Andre Lynch. So I just want to give that shout out and to all of our other partners like one Berkshire, Berkshire Regional Planning, Berkshire Bank, and uh, there's a host of others, and uh, also the state as well. So again, in order to do this work, you have to have a team and a multi-collaborative scenario. And I think we've been really successful at that as a part of what we're doing, and that's why we're seeing the success we are seeing right now. That's why it's Team Reset. Team exactly. number three, SET.com. <laughs> John Lewis, for today, on behalf of Team Reset, you're totally living up to your namesake, I think, with all this, too. Making some Thank you. good trouble out there and the Berkshires. Good trouble, man. <laughs> Thanks so <laughs> much. You got to keep it up. Thanks so much for sharing your vision with us. Oh, no worries, man. It's great to talk to you guys. And we all have to get together and grab like a cocktail or something. Yeah, we're going to, yeah. next time we're out um, in the Pittsfield area, we're going to we'll come. We'll hit you up. We're going to, yeah, we'll go to Hot Plate Absolutely. Word. <laughs> <laughs> the Blackshire's Community Empowerment Foundation is currently accepting applications for its 2024 leadership program. More info can be found through Team Reset's website or at blackshires.net. Up next, <laughs> I am bad at Mandarin. I took Japanese. Happy New Year. It's the Year of the Dragon, and author Grace Lynn joins us to talk about traditions for the holiday and the event she's co-hosting this weekend at Bombix in Florence. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. It's the Lunar New Year this weekend, and over a billion people across the globe will celebrate in their own ways. But if you're curious about some of the Chinese traditions for the holiday, you're in luck, because there's a family-friendly event happening at Bombix this weekend to help you learn more about it. And one of the co-hosts of that event joins us here in studio. Grace Lin is the author slash illustrator of a giant pile of books, including the recently released Chinese menu, the history myths and legends behind your favorite food, which takes a look at some of the more popular sto- the stories behind some of the more popular dishes that you'll see at Chinese restaurants across the country. And with whom we chatted right around that book's release. Welcome back to the show, Grace Lynn. Thanks so much. So happy to be here. We, you can see that we tabbed all the places in your Chinese menu book where things show up about Chinese menu items that have mm. to do with the Lunar New Year. Yes. And it, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's going to feel like a test. <laughs> 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 it's an open book test. Yes, it's, it's right here. But you wrote Feel the free book. To refer. Uh, so it's the year of the dragon. Mm-hmm. Are there any special things that happen in the year of the dragon? Oh, the year of the dragon is a really interesting year. I mean, I think when we say dragon, so many people think about dragon like a Game of Thrones, like these huge beast-like animals. But the dragon in Eastern culture is really, really different. The dragon is considered very noble, very wise. Um, The big thing about the dragon, so... um, the stories of the Chinese zodiac. So hopefully listeners know that 
uh, every year is named after a different animal. So this year right now is the year of the rabbit and it's going to turn into the year of the dragon. And the reason why there's these 12 different animals for the Chinese zodiac is because a long, long time ago, the Jade Emperor, the king of all the heavens, had a birthday party. And he invited all the animals of the earth to come to his birthday party. But to get to his birthday party, they had to cross this huge, dangerous river. So all these animals had to figure out how to cross this river, you know, like the sheep, monkey, and rooster built a raft, you know, they all practiced swimming and things like that. Now, one animal did not have to swim in that river, and that was the dragon. And the dragon, really, because he did not have to swim in that water, should have been number one. But he is not number one in that 12-year cycle. He's actually number five. And the reason why he's number five is because on the day of the race, they said, on your mark, get set, go. And he jumped up in the air, and he was flying over the river, easily beating everyone. But right in the middle of the river, he looked down below, and he saw some people having a drought. And they were calling up to him and saying, please help us, help us. And so he said, ah, oh, I should help those people. So in the middle of the race, he stopped, went over, got, got some rain for them, made it rain, and, and he helped them, and then continued on to the race. And what, that's why he's number five and not number one. And, of course, that shows the character of the Chinese dragon. He's very noble. He's very self-sacrificing. He's very empathetic. So for us this year, in the year of the dragon, for us to be successful like the dragon, we have to be empathetic, Have try to, to listen to our noble tendencies, just like the dragon. I have to add that one of my heroes, Bruce Lee, was born in the year of the dragon, <laughs> in the hour of the dragon. Wow. And they called him the dragon. Enter the dragon is one of the greatest movies of all time. So <laughs> that makes I'm sense. particularly excited about <laughs> entering the year of the dragon <laughs> this coming weekend. My sister Sam is a dragon. Ah, nice. I'm a horse. I am a sheep. Ah. Uh-huh. Oh. What are you, Graceland? I'm a tiger. Oh, that's my awesome. sister is a, My other sister is a tiger. Mm, that means we're very bad planners. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this Saturday, 10 a.m. In Florence, before you embark on this kind of lengthy tour to go uh, across the country, you're going to be bringing the Family Lunar New Year celebration with you and uh, Janie Ho. Yes, Janie Ho. She is a wonderful illustrator and author, and she has a really, really wonderful picture book uh, about the Chinese New Year. You have a picture book about the Chinese New Year as well. Yes, I do. But mine is much older. <laughs> <laughs> what, year of the, what year of the Zodiac was that? Yeah, I, I gosh, it might have been the year of the dragon. The previous uh, year pre- of the dragon? Uh, previous year, maybe two previous years of the dragon. Oh, no. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what's going to happen on Saturday. So it's going to be a really fun event, and I hope everyone comes. Uh, so uh, uh, Janny is going to read her book, and she's going to have, I think, a, a drawing activity. But And I am going to share part of Chinese menu, which includes a reader the- reader's theater. Um, so I have students from the Pioneer Valley Immersion School uh, who who are going to uh, act with me one of the stories from Chinese Menu. It should be a lot of fun. That should be really cool. Are you going to cool. reveal which one it is? Mm, it, I'll just say it's the one with the dr- with dragons in it. Okay. <laughs> and then I think Perfect. and then I think I'm going I think if I'm going to teach everybody how to draw a dragon to give them luck for this year. Yes, you are an incredible illustrator as well as an author too. Like you mm-hmm. I've got a lot of envy that somebody can be so good at storytelling and so incredible at illustrating at the same time. Oh, yeah, thank the, you. The Mountain Meets the Moon and all those books right, that are part of that series blew me away the first time I read them. And oh. I saw that if people are a part of your newsletter, they can get a cutout that they can make of the dragon to put on like a 
window or something or wherever you'd like to have it, mm-hmm. which is really cool. And yeah, every year I make a, a paper cutout template that people can download and cut and make their own. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, are you and are you, wow <laughs> that question died um what are the importance of luck and longevity in the events that that happen at chinese new year and the food that you eat so luck and longevity so there's lots of things there's three things in in Chinese culture that's really, really important. <laughs> Luck, longevity, and wealth. <laughs> For some reason, <laughs> the wealth is really important. <laughs> and so uh, that is seen in almost all the celebrations that um, that are important in, in Chinese culture. Not all of them, but uh, and you, like in birthdays. And, in, and you can really see that at Lunar New Year. So for example, um, the wealth. Uh, a lot of the foods that we eat are like the dumplings and the and the fried spring rolls. And the reason why we eat those is because fried dumplings look like gold ingots, which are the ancient Chinese gold coins. And the spring rolls look like gold bars. So eating those will bring you lots of gold in the year. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is longevity, which you were mentioned. Uh, so a lot of times um, we eat long life noodles or noodles that are really, really, really long because the longer, longer you um, longer the noodles are, the longer your life will be. And of course, uh, not to do with food, but uh, a lot of times uh, parents let their kids stay up really, really late uh, with the idea, the superstition is the longer your kids stay up late on, ch- on, lunar, on lunar New Year Eve, the longer life the parents will have. <laughs> oh, You're getting some black tea tonight, kids, or some coffee. <laughs> We're speaking with Grace Lin, the Newbery and Caldecott Honor illustrator and author behind the new book, Chinese Menu, which has a bunch of uh, menu items that have to do with the Lunar New Year. We might not get to them all in the time we have left, but one that was two pages long about it is Buddha's Delight. Do you want to talk? Do you need the book to have the open book I've got that one memorized. (laughs) You did a whole video series about that. And how does this tie into the the Lunar New Year? um, So... Lunar New Year, uh, Lunar New Year Eve, it's kind of like New Year's Eve here, uh, is a big party. And you eat and you eat and you eat <laughs> like there's no tomorrow because th- that ties into the actual idea of Lunar New Year. That, well, the first Lunar New Year was really because they thought there might not be a tomorrow. So they ate as all their favorite foods and they ate like um, – gluttonously. <laughs> but then, so that's kind of become a tradition to eat gluttonously on New Year's Eve. But then New Year's Day, um, what people tend to do is to eat a little bit more uh, cautiously. I don't know if cautiously, more thoughtfully. I think that's a better word to say. And so on New Year's Day, a lot of people like to eat vegetarian meals. Uh, they like to eat things that are all, uh, because they think that eating a vegetarian meal is good for your digestion after eating rich food the night before. And also, uh, because there's no meat in it, they feel like that's kind of a virtuous way to start your year by not eating meat. Um, and so one of the things that they do eat on New Year's Day, but they also eat New Year's Eve as well, but it is a big thing on New Year's Day, is Buddha's Delight. Uh, and Buddha's Delight originally had 18 ingredients in it. Uh, but nowadays, that's just too many ingredients. <laughs> Most people don't put 18. But they are all vegetarian. And the reason why is because what happened a long time ago in the Song Dynasty was that um, 18 Buddhist monks went out to beg for alms. Uh, when they beg for alms, they're asking for food. And so uh, they went all out and they begged for food. And when they came back to the monastery, they realized that none of them had enough food in their begging bowls to make a meal for themselves. 
But they did realize that if they pooled all their food together, then they might have enough to feed everyone. So one monk had bamboo shoots, another monk had had to- golden tofu, another monk had uh, lotus lotus strings. You know, so and so they pooled it all together. They cooked it together, and there was enough for everybody to eat, and it was delicious, and they, it was a delight, and that became Buddha's delight. I love it. It's such a great story. There's an analog in the stone soup story too. There about the community coming together to make sure everybody has enough to eat, and I love that. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Grace Lin, whose most recent book, I believe, but you're writing books all the time, is Chinese Menu, which ties in nicely to the Lunar New Year, which will be celebrated in Florence at Bombix this Saturday at 10 a.m. with Grace, doing all sorts of fun family activities for the Lunar New Year. Did you and Jenny have a chance to talk about any differences between the traditions that you grew up with before you planned this event? You know, not really. I Honestly, I, I have been a long-time admirer of Jenny's work, but I have never met her in person before, so this oh, will be the first time oh, I'm excited. <laughs> what are some of the things that you grew up doing or that you'll do with your family that you're particularly excited about? Oh, so oh, the big thing is dumplings at our house. We just we... I hate dumplings. <laughs> I Just know. kidding! Can you imagine? <laughs> I have a T-shirt that says it on the back that I'm gonna be, I'm gonna buy one for Graceland next I time am, I go there. Like my partner and I forgot, <laughs> like each thought we were out of dumplings and went out and bought like bags of them because sometimes I'm too lazy to make them and I just can't believe how many we have in the house right now. Yeah, so that, dumplings all <laughs> yes, the time are dumplings too. all the time, but yeah. you definitely have to have them on Lunar New Year Eve. Because if you don't, the auspicious tendencies and the health, wealth, and all that longevity won't come your way? No, it's just money. (laughs) (laughs) Lilies for some long, cold noodles for longevity, right? The fish is for health or the fish is for... The fish is for abundance and wealth. (laughs) Everything is about wealth. (laughs) I'm wearing the auspicious color red today, too. Yes. Red is for luck, though. That is very important because that is what scares away the bad spirits. So wearing red, wearing gold, which attracts... The wealth is important, too. (laughs) Grace Lin, the author of Chinese Menu and so many more books, including Bringing in the New Year, a book that talks about this very topic, Lunar New Year. It'll be celebrated locally with Grace before she goes across the country doing events uh, this Saturday, February 10th, 10 a.m. at Bombix in Florence. Family Lunar New Year celebration with Grace Lin. And I do believe that High Five Books in Florence has both books, yours and Jenny Ho's, so that, like, if you're interested in reading it, taking it home, you totally can. Tomorrow on the show, we'll talk with the folks from behind from behind Costs of Inheritance and the Word Nerd will join us as well and we'll leave you <laughs> as we enter the Year of the Dragon with the theme from Enter the Dragon. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith and I should have worn red for more luck. <laughs>